Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Eleni Jokas. I'm in for Julia Chatterley this week, and here's what you need to know. President Trump is on the attack. He says that the U.S. should have Mario Draghi instead of Jerome Powell. And on the move, Iran sends its first oil shipment to China since the U.S. revoked its waiver. And Netflix becomes the assistant to the regional manager. NBC is taking the office off the streaming site. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. So welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us. And it's a big market moving day, not because of fundamentals, perhaps, but just because of what the things we've been hearing coming through from President Trump and, of course, uh, Steve Mnuchin as well. That's really driving sentiment as we are 30 minutes away from the start of trade here in New York. So let's take a look to see how things are going uh, right now. We've actually got the U.S. futures looking to a positive start. Uh, and that, of course, is on the back of the fact that the S&P 500 fell almost 1% yesterday. Now that was also in the red. In fact, yesterday was the worst day for U.S. stocks this month. Uh, not forgetting that we did hit an all-time high on the S&P 500 last week. But all focus is going to be on some of the comments we're getting about the G20 meeting between Trump and Chinese President Xi as well. Now, Steve Mnuchin, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, has been talking about the fact that a trade deal was 90% complete before talks derailed last month and believes there is still a path to getting the deal done. Now, in comments this morning, President Trump says fresh tariffs on China are still on the table if a trade deal isn't reached. So, conflicting views there, perhaps, but that is definitely something people will be focusing on today. And as futures improve, we've also got the 10-year yields uh, once again above 2%. Remember, as yields rise, it shows more appetite for risk. But even at these levels, yields are pointing to a possible, a possible reverse in fortunes for the U.S. economy. Now, big moves on oil over the last few weeks. That's definitely one to watch. According to the Bank of America, oil prices could tumble if trade talks between the U.S. and China falter. That's in a scenario where the Chinese yuan weakens significantly. Today, however, shorter-term dynamics are playing a role, and oil prices are higher. New data showing that U.S. inventories fell by a greater amount than was expected last week, uh, offsetting perhaps those concerns about the war of words between the U.S. and Iran. So time to get into the drivers uh, right now. And in the past hour, we've heard from President Donald Trump. He's been very vocal about monetary policy. He's been very vocal about Jerome Powell as well. Uh, this during an interview with Fox Business. He hits on tariffs, trade and double down on his attack on Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Let's take a listen. He's a guy. Nobody ever heard of him before. And now uh, I made him and he, he wants to show how tough he is. OK, let him show how tough he is. He's a he's a, he's not doing a good job. Look. I have the right to demote him. I have the right to I have the right to fire him. All right. Christine Romans joins me now. It's pretty jaw dropping wow. stuff. I mean, we had wow. Jerome Powell yesterday saying we're independent. No one can intervene. And now you've got President Trump saying, listen, I can demote, I can fire. And he said, the president of the United States said, Jerome Powell, I made him. 
let him try to show how tough he is. I made him. The point of the Fed that appears to escape the president of the United States is that it is independent. It is appointed by the president, but then there are these terms that are long meant to uh, withstand, you know, the ebb and flow of politics, because every president would like low interest rates heading into an election year. If you did that, you'd have boom and uh, crash and burn economies yeah. one after the other. So it's it's sort of like the Supreme Court. It's not a co-equal branch of government, but it's sort of designed like the Supreme Court to be something that sits aside, uh, outside uh, of the White House. And this president very publicly is trying to send this signal that he wants lower rates. He said he wants Mario Draghi to be the Fed chief yeah. because in Europe they are talking about stimulus and cutting rates and 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 by, you know and injecting stimulus into the economy. And the president was yeah. waxing poetic about that. And Eleni, he has talked about President Xi Jinping before, and he has sort of lamented that the United States isn't like China. Communist China. He has lamented that the United States is not like China, so the president can just uh, devalue a currency or inject stimulus whenever he wants for whatever reason. I mean, the Mario Draghi comment really just, you know, threw me off because Europe is dealing with a whole set of other issues. They need to stimulate to grow the economy. The U.S. is growing. I mean, you know, the holy grail of an economy is basically the way the central banks conduct themselves. And of course, monetary policy is part of that. We've perhaps, you know, learned the lessons of, uh, you know, uh, uh, overstimulation in the past. And that led to an overheated economy and a financial crisis. I mean, surely they should be looking at this as well. Because but, I mean, you know, it's a big risk. Here's here's what's so amazing, and and I've even pulled up um, pulled this up for you. You know, the president, this president, when he was uh, citizen Trump, and the Fed was lowering interest rates during a financial crisis during the Barack Obama administration. This president was criticizing the Fed for lowering interest rates, criticizing the Fed for easy money policies that would lead to uh, too much trouble or an inflated stock market down the road. So this president today is demanding from the Fed chief what he has criticized Janet Yellen and the Obama administration in a much, much weaker economy for doing. So he's on the record um, saying that easy money policies are dangerous. He has likened, she's obviously political, he says, and she's doing what Obama wants her to do, talking about Janet Yellen. That's why it's low rates, because as soon as they go up, your stock market is going to go way down. I believe it's a false market. That's what he is asking for here. Exactly. Very different to what we heard from Jerome Powell yesterday, that they've been reticent, they're going to be proactive if needed. But also, what else did President Trump say? He was talking about so many things, from trade to monetary policy. I mean, he he even said uh, Vietnam is even worse than China, and everyone was talking about how Vietnam is going to be, be the next big play. I have to tell you that these interviews with the president, he's been speaking, he's, he just wrapped up actually, so he's been speaking for yeah. more than an hour, and when he did this on CNBC maybe last week, and it's like, you know, the pinball game, where you watch, you pull back the, you pull back the, the, the trigger and the ball goes all around. That's what the thought process is here on trade. And in that pinball conversation, what I heard was I heard him slamming the Europeans, threatening potentially the idea of big tariffs on the Europeans down the road. That could be a headline I think we should watch for down here. Slamming yeah. Vietnam, saying it's much smaller than China, um, and but that they were looking at, at, at tariffs in, in Vietnam. Slamming the Canadians, but saying they've more recently uh, come yeah. to the table. He talks as though he's aggrieved that the United States is someone who's been just kicked on the beach in the sand, that's facing the sand for years and years. He talks about China uh, taking $500 billion a year from us, only looking at the one side of that trade relationship. Of course, American consumers received $500 billion worth of goods in exchange for that $500 billion 
that cost and also the benefit of so many multinational corporations of their supply chains. So the president has a very simplistic view of things, and he ties a thread between sometimes unrelated items to really push what I think I think a lot of business leaders realize this is the way the president thinks, so they have to kind of adjust around that because he's not changing his mind. Christine, thanks so much for that insight. Uh, and of course, all market moving uh, comments as well. We were watching that closely as we head closer to the start of trade here in New York. Um, and just speaking of trade, we know that China has banned all meat imports from Canada. It's claiming that uh, customs documents were forged. We've got Anna Curran joining us now live from Hong Kong. And the reality is that this comes at a time where the relationship between China and Canada has deteriorated. Is there more to the story than just forged documents? Uh, Eleni, many see this as just a, a further deterioration in relations between China and Canada. But as you say, China has announced the suspension of all meat products from Canada after the detection of residue from a veterinary drug and feed additive in a batch of Canadian pork products. Interestingly, the drug that's called ractopamine is banned in China, but not in Canada or the United States. Now, an investigation also found there were forged customs documents, as many as 188. Uh, Beijing has called on the Canadian government to stop issuing health certificates to meat exported to China, effectively cutting off Canadian suppliers. Now, the Chinese embassy in Canada, they've issued a statement. Let's read that out. We hope the Canadian side would attach great importance to this incident, complete the investigation as soon as possible and take effective measures to ensure the safety of food exported to China in a more responsible manner. Now, the Canadian Agriculture Minister said the Canadian Food Inspection Agency identified an issue involving inauthentic export certificates and had informed authorities. She described it as a technical issue and was working with industry partners and Chinese officials to sort this out. Now, they believe that this will just be a temporary ban. It's also worth noting that in recent months, China suspended import permits for three pork producers and stopped imports of Canadian canola. Now, the diplomatic dispute all stems from the arrest of Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou, in Canada at the end of last year at the request of the United States. She obviously faces extradition to America over allegations she helped Huawei evade U.S. sanctions on Iran. Uh, the Chinese government maintained the arrest was politically motivated. Uh, the Chinese then arrested two Canadians earlier this year. They were accused of gathering and stealing sensitive information and other intelligence since 2017. And of course, the timing, Eleni, is interesting. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is about to leave for the G20 in Japan, which uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping is attending. Trudeau, however, is relying on US President Donald Trump to raise the issue of the arrested Canadians when he meets with Xi. Eleni. Right. Thank you very much for that, Anna. And of course, we've got to remember that China is uh, Canada's third largest export market. So we've got to keep a very close watch on that. Uh, let's shift gears now. We're moving over to Iran, where the first oil shipment to China has been sent off. And that's uh, since um, the, the uh, US, uh, US has re revoked um, those um, uh, rules. And of course, we've got Fred Pitkin standing by for us in Tehran. It's a really interesting move because essentially this move defies U.S. sanctions, uh, essentially. And at the same time, China is saying that the U.S. has got to get back to uh, the negotiating table and even saying and urging that the U.S. government yeah. needs to uphold the nuclear pact as well. This is a really strong signal that's coming through in terms of what China is viewing uh, in, in that region. 
I think you're absolutely right, uh, Lenny. I think that the Chinese are making uh, a clear signal to the United States that, of course, they want to go back to the nuclear agreement. The Chinese, um, of course, are, are big supporters of the nuclear agreement. They've been, they get a lot of their oil out of the uh, Persian Gulf region, and they've been getting a lot of oil from Iran uh, as well. And it really seems as though that's something that is continuing. I can tell you, this news item uh, about uh, that tanker going to uh, China for the first time since the U.S. Uh, got, a, got rid of those uh, uh, sanctions waivers, that's big news here in Iran because, of course, for the last couple of months, all the Iranians have been hearing is that their oil exports have been cut down because of the U.S. sanctions, that they're almost at zero. The Iranians now are saying that uh, in the uh, past couple of weeks alone, they exported uh, around $585 million worth of oil and petrochemical products to China. Uh, that's in May. But now this tanker, obviously, was, uh, was on the high seas for a while. He's the first one to arrive since uh, the, the sanctions waivers have gotten rid of. And the, the Iranians are saying that there's actually more tankers on the way uh, to China, that they're going to be exporting more oil to China. And, of course, the Iranians have been saying they want to bust the sanctions in any case. But it's quite interesting to see that the Chinese would still be buying Iranian oil, of course, also defying the U.S. in, in, in all of this. And, of course, all of this also, um, as you have those talks between uh, President Xi and President Trump coming up at the G20 as well, it be interesting to see if that's going to be one of the topics. So the Chinese not abiding by the United States sanctions, continuing to take oil uh, from the Iranians, and the Iranians obviously uh, making quite a, big, quite a big deal of that as well. It's been quite interesting, by the way, Lainey, uh, today... Um, there was uh, an Iranian professor was out giving some numbers, and he said generally they believe that their oil exports are somewhat stabilizing after they've fallen off a cliff because of those U.S. sanctions. They also think that their economy and their currency might be somewhat stabilizing as well. You never know how much bluster that is. You obviously have the supreme leader of Iran also talking and saying they could develop despite the sanctions. But the Iranians seem to think that things might have bottomed out, and certainly this will be a welcome yeah. news for them to hear that they are able to still get oil to one of their most important trading partners, Lainey. I mean, and basically the goalposts are changing every single day because we heard that new sanctions are going to mean, you know, no deal and no diplomatic solution. Then you've got President Rouhani saying, come back mm -hmm. to the negotiating table regarding nuclear. And then you've got President Trump, who was speaking a short while ago um, in, in the media, and he was saying a hypothetical yeah. war with Iran wouldn't last very long. So this is just sending so many different signals and it's just creating even more uncertainty within the region. It's, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I can tell you what uh, some of these leaders have been saying over the past couple of days. If you take a look at uh, the Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, who yesterday uh, said essentially uh, that the White House uh, was in a state of mental disability, and today he came out and yes. said he's urging the United States to go back to the nuclear program. He said uh, or the nuclear agreement, I should say. He said it's the best thing you could do. It's what uh, the people and all of the countries want. It's what the international community needs as well. You have President Trump, who, for his part, on the one hand, keeps saying that he wants the Iranians to go back to the negotiating table. He says there's no preconditions yeah. for that. But then he goes out and says something like he said just a couple of minutes ago on Fox, that a war would not last very long. And then at the same time, of course, all of this is taking place while there is an extremely tense situation going on in the Persian Gulf. I mean, this is an area where you have a lot of American forces and a lot of Iranian forces in very close proximity uh, all the time. I mean, that's, uh, it, it's been a tinderbox for a while, even more so over the past couple yeah. of weeks. And certainly the, the kind of statements that we're hearing, especially from the U.S. president, also yesterday, for instance, saying that he doesn't need an exit strategy if there ever was a, uh, an armed conflict with Iran. 
those are all things that certainly won't do anything to calm this region yeah. down, Eleni. Exactly. I mean, and the Strait of Hormuz is a choke point for oil exports. So we'll be watching that. We'll be touching, uh, mm. getting up with you um, over the next few days. Thank you very much uh, for that, Fred. We'd like to now turn our attention to some of the stories making headlines around the world and also caution you to this very disturbing uh, picture, which, of course, is heart-wrenching. Uh, and it's something that is moving a lot of policymakers here in the U.S. It's a shocking photograph capturing the tragic reality of the escalating migrant crisis in the U.S. 23-month-old Angie Valeria was found drowned alongside her father as they tried to cross the Rio Grande River. They died as the little girl's mother watched on. The family from El Salvador had reportedly been waiting to receive political asylum from the U.S. We've got Ed Valendera in Clint, Texas, for us, standing by. This picture, Ed, is absolutely heart-wrenching. It's so difficult uh, to look at. And it basically shows that people are so desperate for a better life that they're willing to take a big risk. How has the U.S. government responded well, to this? this has gone on here along... This has gone on here along the Texas-Mexico border uh, for many years, and the, the current in that river is incredibly strong, incredibly dangerous. And what critics of the Trump administration have been saying for months is that because of the Trump administration's crackdown on the number of people who can request asylum at legal ports of entry, uh, that that is driving migrants to make the much more dangerous and treacherous decision of crossing uh, between the ports of entry. And that means crossing through the river. So this has become a very dangerous situation. We've seen a, a dozens of uh, high water rescues uh, that Border Patrol agents have jumped into the river to rescue people who are nearly drowning. But this one has come to a, a fateful end. That, that, fa that uh, father and his daughter had reached the U.S. side. He had put his daughter on the shoreline there. And when she, he went back, to try to get his wife and help her across the river. The young girl jumped in. Uh, she was afraid that she was being left behind there. Uh, and, th and then everything unfolded in, in that uh, horrible, dramatic way. Um, and that is really testament to just how dangerous of a situation many of these migrants are finding themselves in. Ed, thank you very much for that update and for your work uh, there near the border. Appreciate it. We're going to a short break. We'll be back right after this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokas, live from the New York Stock Exchange. U.S. stock futures pointing to a positive open, but they are off their session highs, as you can see, down up uh, a quarter of a percent. And President Trump said in an interview with Fox Business a short time ago um, that uh, new tariffs on China are still on the table if a trade deal isn't reached earlier. Uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said um, that... There is a path to completing the trade deal. President Trump will discuss trade with Chinese President Xi at the upcoming G20 summit. Conflicting messages that we're seeing coming through. And, of course, this um, all needs to be absorbed uh, by what we're seeing in the markets as well. So despite Tuesday's pullback on Wall Street, U.S. stocks remain close to record highs. Uh, that was actually reached last week on the S&P, and they up strongly this month uh, with blue-chip stocks as well. Performing really well, we've got uh, Tracy McMillian, head of Global Asset Allocation Strategy for the Wells Fargo Investment Institute, joining us now. Great to have you. Great to be here. <laughs> and I know that you were listening to President Trump's interview this morning. I was. Just so many different things that came through. Um, and some would say it's conflicting, uh, you know, some of the things that we're hearing from his policymakers that he's put in place, like, you know, Jerome Powell and the like. 
Um, what are you reading into this? And do you think that it's net negative or net positive for the U.S. economy and U.S. markets? Yes. For the U.S. markets, I would say that he just laid out his next steps. So if we were to get a deal with China, uh, I don't think that investors can check trade off and say yeah. everything's okay with trade from here because he just said the eurozone was worse than China. He mentioned Vietnam. So, yeah. you know, it's probably going to be a long time before we, we get trade uh, wrapped up with all these so countries. So multiple trade wars occurring in multiple jurisdictions around the world. Yes. A global yes. trade war, so to speak, scenario. Global trade negotiations, let's call it that. Okay, let's call it that. Let's be a little bit more optimistic. But the reality is that's also been driving sentiment quite a bit. But it's interesting when you look at the S&P, very close to record highs. Uh, but you've also come out with a report where you've looked at what investor optimism is doing. And that's down 18 points from the year before. What are right. investors telling you at the moment? Right. So, so investors are saying that they are concerned. We've been trending downward since the end of 2017. Uh, they're worried about a recession. More than half say that they think a recession could happen within the next 18 months. But at the same time, they say that um, they're generally pretty optimistic about the current economy. So they feel like currently the economy is doing okay. They're worried about what's down the road. Exactly. But I mean, look, just before 2021 hitting a recession or getting into a recession, that's around the corner in reality. So people are going to be adjusting their books perhaps by the end of the year, come early next year, and becoming right. more defensive, getting into the defensive stocks. You know, what are they doing at the moment? Obviously enjoying the ride, but then you've got to get out. You've got to know when to get out. Right, right. So what investors are telling us that they're doing right now, and actually about two-thirds say they feel prepared for a recession. So that's good news. They're reallocating some of their portfolios. Some of them are raising cash. Uh, our recommend, recommendation to our clients is to watch a range from 2800 on the S&P to 2900 We get above the 2900 we take some gains, we get below, we buy some stocks. So we think that it's going to trade within a range, and that there are going to be opportunities on either side of that range. Any specific stocks that you're looking at right now that are good plays? I mean, obviously, you want to stay away from the multinational companies that have big exposure to China. And obviously, now you've got to think about Europe as well, because that could be the next move. I mean, how, how are you looking at things in terms of asset allocation mm -hmm. and company yeah, allocation? So, so we look at the various asset classes within equities. And right now, we think that U.S. small caps is a place to sell. Uh, and emerging markets is a place to buy. So we would be selling some of the small caps because we think they tend to do worse late cycle. Expenses start to rise for them, so think about wages increasing, finding labor is more difficult for them. Whereas emerging markets are actually really um, well-priced right here. You can buy much more earnings in emerging markets per dollar than you can here in the United States. Exactly. And I mean, yields are looking better within the emerging market space. Definitely. But some would say emerging markets are just very prone to any risk aversion globally. And then usually when that happens, emerging markets usually fall off a cliff, even if fundamentals are looking good. Yeah, are you definitely pricing more that risky. Yeah. yeah. Emerging markets are more risky. And because they're more risky, we would have a higher overall long-term allocation to U.S. large cap stocks. But we do think that an allocation to emerging markets is appropriate we'd be increasing that allocation right now. How much is hinging on the Fed cutting rates? Because that's been a big debate, big conversation, and the markets right. are clearly, clearly pricing in big moves on rates. And there's now, and we heard from Jerome Powell yesterday, we heard from President Trump today saying Mario Draghi did a better job. 
Right. So, right. So um, the, the Fed's got a tough balancing act right now. Uh, they have to determine how much the trade negotiations are impacting the economy. They've got to see that flowing through the data and then respond to the data. So they're just saying that we can and we will cut rates if need be. So they're watching that data to see if it's necessary. Tracy, really good to have you with me. Thank you very much for Thank joining you. us. Much appreciated. We're going to a short break right after this. New York starts trade and we'll be bringing you the latest numbers. Stay with us. Jockers live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell. Big cheers today. And U.S. stocks are rebounding from Tuesday's losses. Uh, let's take a look at those numbers. As you can see, the Dow Jones only slightly higher. It, it showed in pre-market trade that we would actually get a better start to the day, but perhaps being pulled lower by some of President Trump's uh, comments today on Fox Business uh, this morning. And he was just talking about tariffs against China if the, the negotiations don't go well. He was talking about his next move in terms of targeting trading partners. So lots of things to absorb this morning. And I think market participants are taking that very seriously. S&P 500 reached an all-time high last week. We're off those highs, of course, and we're down a quarter of a percent in early trading uh, as well. G20 on the, the mark as well. We're, we're focusing on uh, what will happen later on this week. In the meantime, gold is pulling back from six-year highs. It's been an upward trajectory on the back of accommodative monetary policy, as well as uncertainty regarding trade, as well as on the Middle East, instability and low rates. Uh, as you can see, it's trading slightly lower. Okay, so let's move on now. I want to take a look at the big movers this morning. We've got BlackBerry. Uh, it's down almost 2% at the moment. The company's quarterly revenue beat expectations, uh, boosted by its recent takeover of a cybersecurity firm. And it's interesting right now, as you can see, it's coming under pressure uh, this morning. We're also watching Wayfair. It's an interesting company to look at. Uh, as you can see, it's up uh, six-tenths uh, of a percent uh, today. The company is selling furniture uh, to migrant camps. Wayfair senior management says it still plans to work with detention facilities. Uh, that stock is moving um, up this morning. In the meantime, Micron Technology, it's also an interesting company uh, this morning. The maker of computer memory chips was really hit hard hit last week after the U.S. government basically said that uh, Chinese uh, companies couldn't buy any products from, from them, but they were then able to do so. They circumvented some of those rules and are selling back to Huawei. We've got Claire Sebastian joining us now, um, and I'd like to talk on Micron. It's getting more than one-tenth of its revenue from Huawei. Um, in the quarter, Micron wrote down around $40 million worth of inventory re related to that company. So it's interesting play now that they were able to get around the regulation and actually see which products were banned and which products actually aren't, and that boosting the stock price this morning. Absolutely, Eleni, and not just Micron, but across the chip sector, which, as you know, has been really beaten down uh, by fears around this trade war. It's extremely exposed to China and in particular to Huawei. As you say, Huawei is about 13 percent uh, of Micron's revenue in the first half of this year. So I think investors are looking at this, uh, this news that they now have restarted some shipments uh, to Huawei in the last two weeks uh, as, as a really positive thing. The blanket ban that they had been expecting on all exports to that company after it was placed on the entity list by the Commerce Department has not turned 
turned out to be a blanket ban. Now, Micron hasn't said which of its products or how many of its products it can still ship to Huawei, but uh, we know that there are certain exceptions when it comes to the entity list, perhaps uh, items with less, uh, less than 25% US content that most of them uh, are foreign-made can still be shipped. But clearly, this is something that their lawyers have been heavily focused on. Having said that, the stock has been so beaten down that this jump uh, has to be viewed in that context. Delaney, Micron is down, uh, or it was before today, some 25% uh, from at the end of April. So certainly uh, that won't go anywhere near reversing that trend. Yeah, and I must say, uh, Claire, you look good in your safety mining gear. But it's good to have you back in the studio today. You've just returned from a rare earths mine, and we spoke yesterday. You were talking about the fact that um, rare earth concentrate is actually shipped to China, and they process, uh, you know, the resource there. But the point is, if the U.S. really wants to uh, ensure its independence, it's, it's actually got to produce, uh, create processing plants here in the U.S. What did you learn when you were at this uh, mine? Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, talking about Huawei because this was a uh, the blacklisting of Huawei was was seen as one of the biggest weapons that the U.S. could deploy in the trade war. Uh, and in the wake of that, China stepped up uh, its hints that it could deploy a weapon of its own, and that would be to restrict rare earth exports, which is a supply chain that it has a stranglehold over. But we traveled to a place called Mountain Pass, California. It's about an hour uh, from Las Vegas. This is the only rare earths mine in the United States, and it's a key part of the U.S. strategy to reduce its dependence on China. Take a look. Okay. Three, two, one, fire in the hole. Blasting through the rock. Very good. To reach the precious metals underneath. Beautiful sight to see. These are busy times here in Mountain Pass, California. A mine thrown into the spotlight by the US-China trade dispute. Is this the busiest you've known it? Right now it is, and we, do, we continue to uh, accelerate more and more each day. This is the only rare earths mine in the United States, but just two years ago it was sitting idle after the previous owners went bankrupt. Now, though, it's well and truly back up and running. The current owners say it accounts for more than 10% of global rare earth supplies. Rare earths are 17 naturally occurring elements, crucial ingredients in everything from cell phones to electric cars. This is very valuable product right here. The co-chairman of the mine, James Litinsky, is aware he's leading a lone US competitor in an industry dominated by China, where labor costs are cheaper and environmental rules less strict. If there's going to be an American rare earth industry, it's going to be led by us. We're it. So this is actually the product, this is the concentrate coming out of the mill. And we will package this into those containers over there. And that is uh, currently the product that we're shipping. So right now, everything you produce, everything goes to China. Yes, that's correct. That's because China processes much of the material from other countries, currently producing 90% of the world's supply. Beijing recently threatened to use that dominance as leverage in the trade dispute, hinting it could restrict rare earth exports, cutting off not only U.S. companies, but also the military, which uses rare earths in jet engines, satellites and missile defense systems. The Pentagon told us they're, quote, working closely with the president, Congress and the industrial base to mitigate U.S. reliance on China for rare earths. 
My first reaction is, wow, what have we bought? Mountain Pass has its own plans to reduce its reliance on China, this massive processing facility that they plan to get up and running by next year. There really is nothing like this facility in the world. The scale of it, the amount of investment that has gone into it. And there were a lot of people who doubted that we could get this thing going again. Has the trade war provided more impetus to get this off the ground. So there's definitely a greater sense of urgency. This plant would allow them to sell separated rare earths directly to global companies. Litinsky says it's a mission he feels the U.S. government needs to support. And if the United States of America is going to be a leading power in the world, we need to continue to grow our economy. And so there needs to be a recognition that the industries of the future drive GDP, they drive employment, and ultimately that will drive Uh, your military budget. And so as a matter of national security, we need to lead in these industries of tomorrow. A recognition that could help turn this mineral-rich soil into an American rare earths revival and a viable alternative to China. Right. Thank you so very much for that update and insights. Okay, Sebastian, great to have you on the show. Right, so up next, China's fragile growth. A new report warns of threats to the economy. We'll bring you all the details right after this. So, welcome back to First Move. China's economy improved slightly in the second quarter, but its growth is unstable and the risks serious. Those are the findings of the most recent independent China Beige Book report. For more on this, I'm joined by Leland Miller, uh, CEO of the China Beige Book. Really good to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so you're looking at economic data out of China. The big question is, do you believe the economic data that's coming out of China so that you can make your own assumptions to create this report? The Chinese have a lot of reasons to announce their data, and part of them are political. So we started China Beige Book back in 2010 for the reason for the sole reason that you cannot rely on data coming out of China. There's too many things that the government wants to tell people that that, uh, that may not be good news and, and they don't like to re- release bad news. So you got to be very careful when you rely on this stuff. It's 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 politically manipulated and quite often it's it, what's well, non-transparent, but it, quite often it's, it's lag. So you might be three or four months at a time at any given time, at a given point. It's interesting. Retail sales out of China for the month of May were out yesterday showing 8.6% growth, which is looking pretty good. It seems that the Chinese consumer is faring quite well. But again, you're getting other views saying China's slowing, they need to embark on stimulus. You're saying it's not sustainable growth in the second quarter, so what are we going to see? Well, you know, on the positive side of the ledger, retail did perform well in the second quarter. So the the idea that the Chinese consumer is going to sweep in and take care of China's debt problem, that has always been overhyped. It's wrong. But you do see ebbs and flows of retail. And we saw an actually improving retail situation in the second quarter. We also saw manufacturing improve, which is, which is not consensus either. So there are good things happening. A lot of this is undergirded with the enormous amount of credit support they're giving to the economy. And I guess the big question is just to what extent is the trade war with the U.S. going to impact the Chinese economy? Do they have tools in the box to counteract the big play with uh, the U.S.? I mean, I know everyone's trying to divert routes. But, I mean, is there enough demand in other economies to counteract the, the issues that we're seeing with the U.S.? They do have tools. The key is they're already starting to use these tools, most of which they haven't uh, admitted to. So one of the things we saw in the second quarter, probably the most interesting thing, is the return of, of shadow banks. Yes. For the last several years, 
We haven't seen that trend, and all of a sudden we've seen this reemergence. They do have tools. Q1 was heavy credit support to a very disadvantaged, bar, typically disadvantaged borrowers. Q2 is the turn of shadow banks. So <clears throat> they have options here, but they're really having to turn them on in order to get this yeah, juice. And this shadow banking play is really interesting because it just goes to show that traditional banks just find investments too risky at this point in time. But you know, I think when we look back at the financial crisis, it was China who helped stimulate the economy as a whole out of the trouble it was in. And now we're kind of, you know, we're playing this this different game with China. It's a big economy. It's got 1.3 billion consumers. If it slows down, what impact is it going to have on the rest of the world? Well, it's going to slow down. I think people need to get that in their head. There's there's a best-case scenario and there's a worst-case scenario, and both of them involves China slowing dramatically over time. Now, if they restructure and reform and do it the right way, then they can come out the other end very strong with slower but healthier growth. If they keep pushing this off and pushing this off, then they're going to have a fall in growth down the road due to the fact that they've accumulated too much debt and return on investment is so paltry that they can't they can't keep up these high growth rates and there'll be social problems connected to that, the labor market. So they have to make a decision. I think a lot of what they would like to do right now is deal with the trade war, come to a deal, and then get back on the road to try to fish. About it? A negotiation happening this week. Yeah, I think right now, you know, we, we spend a lot of time working with the administration on some of these issues. The administration wants to come in and they want to reset the talks. And they're willing to, to punt the, the last tranche of tariffs in order to do it. So you could have some very positive headlines coming from Osaka. Uh, that doesn't mean a deal is done. That means that they're going to restart the, 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 the talks. They're very close. Secretary Mnuchin said they're 90% done. I'd say they're 95% done. But those last 5%, not easy, and it'll take a little bit to get I mean, over the hump. we're also seeing Fitch was saying that, you know, uh, the trade war could actually take off 0.4% of global growth. What impact is it going to have on Chinese growth as a whole? Have you got a number that you guys are looking at? What's the prognosis? We try to stay away from the GDP growth number, but we can say this. On the one side, the tariffs uh, are threatened at 500 billion tariffs at 25%. That's an enormous nightmare scenario for, 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 for the Chinese economy. At the same time, you have Trump hitting their technology companies. Huawei may be the most important SOE in China. If they don't come to a deal, and make no mistake, she would like to come to a deal. If they don't come to a deal, then you're going to have a very, very, very difficult conditions for the Chinese economy in the second half. In addition to the fact that we're going to see significant repayment pressure because all this credit that was funneled around, that was that was spewed out the spigots in the first half of the year has come at a very high capital cost. So there'll be repayment pressure trying to meet those ca- higher capital costs second half of the year. They don't want to see this happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, China is such a big holder of U.S. treasuries as well. So there's so much at play. Then I see the geopolitics that occurs. I mean, Iran is sending oil to China. It's defying U.S. sanctions. There's so many other messages that we're seeing in the lead up to this conversation. I mean, it almost seems like, you know, a show of force, a show of strength uh, by all sides. Mm-hmm. It's not a good way to get to a negotiating table. Well, that's right. I mean, <laughs> One of the questions we get all the time is how can President Trump afford to come to a deal with China when China is the enemy and, and there's so much anti-China tension in the United States and you have 2020 coming up? Well, the reason is you can come to an end of the trade war for now, but you still have so many other different routes that, that you're competing with China on South China Sea, technology, uh, et cetera. So th- this is not going to calm down with China, even if you have a trade deal in the next few months. Leland, thank you very much for joining us. Great to have you much. on. Much appreciated. Okay, more to come on First Move. Out of the office, Netflix loses its biggest TV blockbuster. I'll update you right after this.
Right, welcome back. The global market for electric scooters could hit nearly $30 billion by 2025. This as e-scooter company Lime announces it's launching a major expansion in Latin America. I sat down with Lime's global head of operations and strategy, Wayne Ting, and asked him about the vision behind his company's rapid growth. We've been focused on North America and Europe where we're the number one provider, but we actually see a huge opportunity in Latin America. It's got some of the biggest cities in the world, some of the densest, most congested, and it's actually got a young population that embraces technology. And so we're gonna be going all in Latin America over the coming months, uh, launching in Brazil and Argentina and Peru, scaling in Mexico. And we actually see it as a huge opportunity. Um, it's in many ways a perfect market for micromobility. Do you have to engage with the government when and the regulators when you're heading into these new markets? And, and what kind of negotiations do you need to embark on there? Uh, 100%. So our strategy is to always partner with cities. Um, we are there. It doesn't work unless the communities feel like this is something they want. Um, and I think our best argument is that this is good for the local community. It's cheaper, it's oftentimes faster, especially with congestion, and it's more environmentally friendly. The future um, is going to have fewer cars and more forms of transportation, and micromobility is going to be part of that future. And of course, it's very interesting. I mean, all these cities, Brazil and Argentina, Mexico City, they want to get rid of congestion on the roads, yes. you know, and, and now you're kind of filling that gap as well. You launched in Germany not too long ago as well. Do you think this is going to be a real replacement for motorbikes and for you know traditional uh, bicycles that people have been accustomed to in these territories? So I actually think the biggest replacement is going to be for the personal cars. Most of the world's transportation in big cities actually are dominated by personal cars. Um, there are 90 million cars in Brazil, 45 million cars in Mexico, and 30 plus percent of the trips are less than two miles. The car is not a good way to move around. It's expensive, you, it's congested, and it's not good for the environment. And this is where I think micromobility is going to replace it. That 30% of the trips that are less than two miles, you're gonna see scooters, you're gonna see bikes, you're gonna see other forms of lightweight electric vehicles replacing that over the next decade. And at the end of the day, it's also about the design itself. How are you evolving within that space? Because we've actually seen people coming up with new designs, wanting to enter that space, saying, you know, there's space to hold your bag and for women, and there's, you know, if you wanna be on uh, on your scooter with, um, you know, your, your suit and, and your laptop. I mean, how are you evolving within the design spectrum? Yeah, so hardware is so important. Right, hardware is, is critical for safety, critical for quality, rideability, durability of the scooters. We have invested from day one in our own hardware. We have over 100 people working on R&D on the scooter side. And that means that we have more iteration of our scooters. It means that our scooters have more investments than any of our competitors. And so things like what you're describing is that, our, can we create scooters for different terrain, different countries, different climates? We are looking through all that. And, and when you try a Lime scooter, you're gonna know it feels different. It feels different than, than what's on the market. When I think of motorbikes, for example, they're always seen as a hazard. I mean, you know, there's lots of accidents within you know, that space. Do you want a lane specifically for e-scooters? Do you think that these are gonna be kind of going through the traffic like we see with traditional motorbikes? Right, so, so safety is incredibly important. Um, and I think what you pointed out is one of the things that's really important for safety is making sure that there are um, bike lanes and protected bike lanes for scooters and bikes. I think we should share that. So do you think it's scooters, bikes, and bicycles? Totally, Is yeah. that in the same kind of category? Exactly. I think we, we should have a lane that is for kind of micro light um, mobility options. And that's really, really important because um, when I think about what makes scooters and bikes oftentimes um, not always safe is that they have to share the roadway with cars. 
And so the more we can build up infrastructure, the safer that experience will be. Alphabet and Uber investing in the company, $335 million last year. That's a really good, you know, these are really good partners to have. Yep. What are you offering them in return? Exposure to these markets, exposure to the next big thing on the transportation front? Right, so I, we think it is a huge differentiator that some of the biggest technology companies in the world, Google of course has the biggest mapping um, um, uh, software in the world, Uber is the world's largest ride-sharing business. The fact that they said we're gonna invest in Lime shows that they see us as emerging as the leading micro-ability provider. It's both a sign of confidence, but it also shows the type of partnership that we can bring to the table as we go into Latin America. Okay, so the most congested cities in the world like Beijing, Lagos in Africa, in Nigeria, uh, Johannesburg, where I'm from. What's the plan? So we're, we're going to Latin America next over the next three months. Yeah. And I think Africa is something that should be on the roadmap. When you look at congestion, young population. You have no idea. Lagos, <laughs> the streets of Lagos. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, and one of the things that's fascinating about Africa is that Africa oftentimes skip technology generation. Right. So for a long time, people said, oh, you got to lay... Landlines. No, Africa went directly to cell phones. And I actually think Africa could be in a, a case example where they skip the world of personal car ownership and go directly to shared and go directly to micromobility. Right, The Office has become the latest battleground in the streaming wars. Netflix will lose the U.S. version of the hit series in 2021 when NBC takes it back to use on its own streaming platform. The Office was the most watch show on Netflix last year. We've got Brian Stelter joining me now. Many people are really upset about this. And of course, it's basically the opposite of Pretzel Day for Office fans, yeah? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, this is an expected move by NBC, but it's still going to be disappointing to fans of the show who like to stream it on Netflix. I would say The Office has traced the trajectory of streaming television. A decade ago, I had to pirate the show. I wanted to watch it. There was no easy way to watch it online. Then NBC.com and Hulu came along. This was a streaming hit when it was actually on TV with new episodes. Now, a decade later, it has had a second life on Netflix. And NBC's been paid quite a bit of money by Netflix to be able to replay those episodes on Netflix. But the world's changing. We see all these companies launching their own streaming services. Yeah. NBC is one of them. And NBC's decided it needs to bring some of its content home, bring it back inside yeah. its own walled garden in order to gain subscribers. Brian, but this will not take I, I effect until 2021. I, I, yeah, and I want, I want you to look at this tweet and he basically, basically what we saw Netflix saying that you yeah. know, members can binge watch the show uh, content <laughs> ad-free on Netflix. And basically, that's taking a stab at NBC that is launching an ad-related you know, streaming service. And that's the thing. Right, These content producers are going to be taking back their content and putting it on their own platform. So you, you've got to produce your own content. I mean, it comes down to that. Yes, we're seeing this all across the industry. Netflix, in the case of The Office, is saying, hey, go ahead and watch it for the next two years. And by the way, NBC is only taking the domestic rights. So internationally, this the show will be available on different platforms. Big picture, though, this is a move we're seeing across the industry. And Netflix is prepared for it. In fact, what did they do recently? They went out and ordered a new show called Space Force with the star of The Office, Steve Carell. So there will be a new version of The Office in space yeah. on Netflix. <laughs> Exciting times. Brian, thank you so very much. Thanks. Well, that's it for First Move. Thanks so very much for watching. I'm Eleni Jokas, uh, International Desk with Robin Kerno start, starts right after the short break. And let's quickly check in to see how the markets are doing. We're sitting uh, flat with uh, a positive bias. All right, bye from me. I'll see you tomorrow.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.